Our text for today is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, and then we'll jump to 44 through 50. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's home. She brought perfumed oil in a jar made of alabaster. And standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since, she came, since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven. So she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other table guests began, began to say among themselves, who is this person that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's get a couple of things straight. First, this woman is not Mary Magdalene. All four Gospels have a story, they are different stories, of a woman anointing Jesus. And in none of them is the woman Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was important, but she's not this woman. The other thing to notice is that we don't know what this woman's sins were. Over the years, tradition has assumed that they were sexual. But I think our assumption of that is based more in our habit of objectifying women as sexual objects than in anything actually in the text. It doesn't say what her sins were. Maybe she was an incorrigible pickpocket. Maybe she was a pathological liar. Maybe she was a compulsive gossip. Maybe she poisoned her husband. Maybe he deserved it. Whatever it was, everybody knows, and they judge her for it. We may not have sinned so publicly, but we all mess things up royally from time to time. And we all mess things up in little ways on a daily basis. We all carry some measure of shame and regret. All we need to know about this woman is that she regrets something. 
And she experiences other people's judgment everywhere she goes. She has to carry that weight around with her. But then Jesus comes to town. And as so often happens, things look different. Jesus has been invited to the house of someone who seems to have his life relatively altogether. And Jesus tends to spend most of his time with people whose lives are falling apart. But he is willing, even happy, to come over and be with this man whose life seems relatively together. Then this woman appears. It doesn't seem like she was an invited guest. She just comes in. I wonder if she was striding with purpose or hunched with fear of judgment or just walking, daring, full of courage. She comes in and with complete attention and focus begins to show her devotion to Jesus. Everyone is scandalized. Surely she knew they would be. But she doesn't care. And Jesus doesn't care. They have eyes only for one another. It's Simon who can't see the love that's at work. Simon who's trapped in rules and judgment. This is how it should be. This is how you should act. And she, well, everyone knows about her. She doesn't live by the shoulds. The woman is the hero in the story. That seems fairly clear. But I would be lying if I didn't confess that Simon is the one I first relate to. If I were to list my top ten of sins and forms of brokenness, Self-righteousness and judgmentalism would be on that list. And I can't seem to get loose of it. I even judge myself for being judgmental. Maybe you can relate to that somewhat. Simon is so obsessed with someone else's missteps that he doesn't seem to see his own. And isn't that the way it is? It's so much easier to see what's wrong with someone else. If people would just let me run their lives, then they'd be fixed. Right? It's so much easier to see what's wrong with someone else than to see what's going on in our own lives. As a nation, we're having a master class in this when it comes to racism. It is pervasive and insidious and yet we are so often blind to it. We're blind to the way our organizations and communities perpetuate these sins. Sometimes we're blind to what we have done. And sometimes we're all too aware of it, like this woman. Sometimes we fear that facing our brokenness head on will break us. How could we possibly come to terms with some of what we regret? Forgiveness is for other people, 
not for us. We don't deserve it. Sometimes we feel that way. A pastor told me about a woman who came to him once to confess how she treated her children. She was not the worst mom in the world, not by a long stretch. But she had done things she regretted, bitterly. And she feared, like many parents, that she had done her children irreparable harm. And she said to this pastor, you know what part of the service I hate the most? I hate when we say, you are forgiven. Because I just can't believe it. It can't be true for me, not given what I've done. And she wept. The pastor cried with her and said, I stake my life on this. You are forgiven. And you don't have to believe that right now. But just try not to fight it. She lived with that for months and years. And slowly, even though she couldn't quite forgive herself, she came to trust that there was forgiveness, even for her, from a greater power. That kind of honesty she displayed is breathtaking to me. It takes courage to really face who we are. The recovery community is particularly wise about this. One woman in recovery once said that calling herself an alcoholic was like opening a door. And once she walked through that door, she found a whole new world of healing and transformation available to her that she had never dreamed of. Once she named it, she could begin to heal and accept forgiveness for the things she regretted. It takes courage to face our shortcomings. It also takes courage to accept forgiveness. That's the real power of this story for me. This woman accepted her acceptance from Christ. She accepted the forgiveness that Jesus embodies with every breath. And that forgiveness part is interesting to me. Because it can be read at least two ways when this forgiveness happened. On the one hand, it says, you are forgiven. That seems clear enough. In that moment, presto changeo, she is forgiven. But... It also says, you have been forgiven. An action that began in the past and continues into the present. So not only is she forgiven in this moment, but she has been forgiven. Perhaps from the very beginning of the world, she has been, like all of us, forgiven. I'm compelled by that. Something convinced this woman, in spite of everything, that she would be met with love and acceptance in Jesus. She was so sure of it that she could walk into this room with people who were going to judge her harshly 
And she could walk in and throw herself into this act of deep devotion. And kind of shrug and say, so what? Whatever they think. Too often we think about forgiveness as transactional. I do something wrong and owe a debt. Someone cancels the debt and I'm forgiven. But we all know that people can say you are forgiven and still hold a grudge. Someone can tell us you are forgiven, but we don't believe it in our bones. And sometimes, every once in a while, we meet someone and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are accepted just as we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what secrets we carry. That acceptance is the love of Christ in our midst. That acceptance shapes us, forgives us, makes us whole if we have the courage and the willingness to accept it, live by it, welcome the healing and wholeness it offers. Amen.